to our podcast within a podcast pottering around the poorly disguised tracks that lead directly to the cabin of Mangum Reeds. We are three muggles who are, quite frankly, unsure what we would present giants with to earn their favor. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? Doing well, Sarah. Looking forward to this chapter. The weird little always good. story within That's a story fun. we've got going on here. I, I, I'll come right out the gate. This is one of my favorite chapters in this book. It was it was quite a bit of just world building that felt very natural and lived in, just to have somebody else describing what they were doing off page the entire time. That we have been wondering about all book, to be honest. Very true. I mean, and Ambassador Hagrid seems right for this <laughs> in specific, um, but also very on brand, and maybe we'll get into this in, in Newbie's notes and things like that, but very on brand for Dumbledore to force an issue shall we say <laughs> for for personal growth that that seems aggressive yeah, Matt, Matt Maxine was there you know he had a guide and it, from, from a certain perspective he may be the ideal diplomat there's no subterfuge going on in the man you can trust him of what he's saying he can't hide it for a half minute I mean maybe this is essentially a ship because uh Dumbledore is uncomfortable with the Hagrid McGonagall relationship <laughs> oh, God, that's how that's how you meant it got it Just, Go alone in the wilderness together. It'll be wonderful. Well, that, that's half yes. of it. The other half is, you know, his parentage and stuff like that, which is also like a fraught thing to just be like, hey, I have an idea. You're going to be an ambassador. <laughs> and, and with that, uncover all of the, the childhood trauma that we haven't dealt with so far. In the midst that of seems like fun. these high stakes negotiations. Anyway. At, for, and for the, and good. the other half giantess that you have a significant crush on. This is good. I like this. Hey, from his, we will discuss how well this worked out or didn't. Uh, I mean, really, you know, into the goblet of fire. <laughs> out of the out of the goblet into the fire. Anyway, we're on chapter twenty of book five of the whole Harry Potter series. Uh, we are on a ha- Hagrid's tale. <laughs> Sorry, I, my cat is doing something weird down here, and I. <laughs> I completely lost track of what was going on here. We are in... Are, are you sure it's a cat and not the other thing that you can't swing around for space? Um, book five, Harry Potter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Harry mm-hmm. Potter Long and script. the Order of the Phoenix, chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale, not a winner's tale. Um, that's a different podcast, Shakespeare-related, that mm-hmm. we can discuss at some other point. But we do have some segments that we do here. We have a rapid-fire recap. BJ's Wizard Wheezes, Newbie's Notes with Spencer, we award house points, um, and then there are questions and and queries and all of that kind of stuff, so. And, and in terms of our initial segment, Sarah, this entire chapter is somebody else giving a recap on what they've been doing the entire Yeah, book. so it's a, we're in recap of a recap territory, which as we listeners might remember from previous books is not great for me. <laughs> it's, no, no. It's, it's actually even better because it's, Two recaps, or a recap of two recaps of differing accounts of nothing. <laughs> that, and then, it, it even throws on the extra element of that, we follow, we end with an interrogation, which also has elements of a recap attached yes. to it. Yes. Yeah. Right, that's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. meant. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty sure, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm under two minutes here, but I am not going to put a bet on this because I don't, 
I also did these notes like two weeks ago at this point, and I don't remember what's in them or we'll find whether out. I edited them or We're not. Doing... We're doing it live. Okay, I've got two minutes written down. I found the stopwatch again, so All whatever right. you're ready. They grab the invisibility cloak and take off for Hagrid's hut, where they are horrified to see that he's a mess of bleeding cuts and bruises, but he's reluctant to talk about what happened, uh, choosing a dragon meat steak as a poultice instead of going to see Madame Pumphrey. Hermione's got a probing question, though. Did the giants beat him up? After much hemming and hawing and a detour into the tale of Harry's summer, Dementor attacks and getting expelled, and the hearing, um, Hagrid starts the story of going to look for giants with Madame Maxime. Dumbledore sent them to the mountains with strict instructions to avoid the ministry tale that was on them. After a detour through France, they made it to the giant's encampment, only 80 or so left after being made to live bunched up together. The next day, um, they approach bearing gifts for the Gerg. Uh, this has auto-corrected in my thing. I don't remember what his name is. More than anything, uh, the giants want magic, so they take him the everlasting fire from Dumbledore. They proceed... Uh, slowly promising to come back the next day with another present, a goblin made battle helmet, and um, they start to talk them into their side. They promise to return again, but that night there's a fight, the Gurg is killed, and there's a new Gurg who had no interest in listening to them. His guards grabbed Hagrid, uh, Madame Maxime started cursing them, and they had to hightail it out of there. In the coming days, they realized uh, that Golgamath was in conversations with the Death Eaters. They started searching out uh, the stray giants who had been against Golgamath as Gurg. They found a way and seemed to be convincing them. They found a few and seemed to be convincing them, but the ruling faction raided the caves. Uh, but they did all they could do, deliver Dumbledore's message and hope some of them remember it eventually. Hermione asked if Hagrid found anything about his mother. She died years ago, but none of that explains why it took so long for him to get back and in such a state. Just as Hagrid's about to say uh, where he's been, there's a knock at the door. It's Umbridge. Harry, Ron, and Hermione hide under the invisibility cloak, and he lets her in. She's immediately horrible to Fang and Hagrid. He shucks and jives over the voices she heard and the footsteps to the cabin door while she searches the cabin and interrogates him about his injuries and where he's been. Away for his health is the story he tries to spin, but she immediately asks if he's been taken, uh, take taking in the mountain scenery, she knows. Umbridge makes a quick exit after informing Hagrid that his class will be inspected. Hermione starts trying to steer what he might teach away from anything dangerous, but it doesn't really seem to compute for Hagrid. He shoes them out of the cabin with Hermione vowing to plan his lessons for him if that's what it takes. Ooh, that was a rough one. Also, a lot of typos in this summary that... <laughs> 12, 12, 12, 16. Yikes, that is, that is not, not great. Um... But anyway, there we go. That's a, a tale within a tale. Haggard's tale. <laughs> Square. Multiple, Multiple tales. tales. It's tales all the anyway, way down. I'm also glad um, that we've I got will say, notes to sort some of that out because those were a disaster. <laughs> uh, I'm here for the the name of the original chief because if you have a big bloated chief that just sort of lays there and does nothing, uh, what else would you name him but Carcass? It auto-corrected to Marcus in my notes, which really threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very regular name for this guy. That's the that is the whitewashed version. Yes. Um, I'm also really amused by how foul uh, Hagrid's language is in in this uh, chapter. Oh. Uh, it's not out and out foul, but but it British very much foul. is. Um, so, I mean, he starts off with ruddy dementors, which is clearly, uh, you know, in, in, in place of, of some four letter word unclear as to exactly which one. Um, the next thing that I thought was quite interesting is, uh, Burke. Now I'm not a hundred percent clear on what Burke is supposed to be, but it does really seem to be 
uh, a Cockney rhyming slang for Berkeley Hunt, uh, which rhymes with another four-letter word, uh, and is a little bit of a surprise uh, that it that it's in here. But there also is just a Merriam-Webster uh, Burke is a fool. I I don't know. I prefer the first one. I think it's very funny that that would be there. Uh, Hag Hag Hagrid's dialogue is often often like you know inserting Chinese into Firefly. Let him just go full British Englishly <laughs> so he can do lots of curses. Only to British people will they be offended. Broader audience won't care, but he will just go hard into Cockney insults and cursing. Uh, yeah. So so a hard B there for uh, <laughs> Hagrid, uh, which which was. You know, interesting to see. I mean, I do understand, uh, and I'm gathering that the number of parents reading the books to their children is plummeting at, at this point in in the series. So it's mm, probably mm -hmm. not as just like, oh God, uh, I'm, skip that. I'm just going to ignore this and not read it to my child uh, and or hope they don't know. I also don't know how common like people understanding cockney rhyming slang is like it just that's super just unclear to me so yeah, i don't know i can speak as like a child who most of my like entertainment when i got to like middle school years was basically harry potter and like british mysteries and sitcoms that mm -hmm. like i just walked around using british curse words and like nobody knew what I was talking well a nobody knew what I was talking about b everybody thought I was <laughs> weird which fair um and then like I didn't know what I was saying either so like <laughs> Sarah it is good to know I wasn't alone because me reading Edgar Rice Burroughs way too young and watching way too much British TV my dialogue just shifted to straight yeah. British at a way too young an age it was there was like a weird few years there for me that god bless anyone who was still my friend at that point <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do feel that I do feel that across the pond, pretty much every show adaptation has one Cockney character. It's yes. like a trope to have yeah. that in some way. And so I, I think there's a base level of familiarity that Hagrid's dialogue to them is just like, yeah. I, I think there might be some of that. I feel like it's have it's like having the the redneck in in a lot of things sure. in, in you know U.S. stuff, and you know they sort of have their own thing. And I I wonder if there's a lot more of a you can kind of figure out what it is from mm -hmm. context, but like not actually know, which is easier and better for, for everything involved. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I, there, there is a, a thing that Hermione does that, that Sarah, I feel like you sympathize so much with, which is, um, they're talking about the everlasting fire and, and Hermione's like, you know, Professor Flitwick mentioned it <laughs> twice. Obviously, everybody knows what this is. And it's just like, uh, it was no. three and a half years ago. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I do sympathize with that. Um, and, I, you know, if people would just pay attention, we wouldn't have to keep <laughs> having these conversations. Sarah, we yes. don't have to pay attention. We've got you. That really exactly. is what's going on here. <laughs> It's exactly what's, what it is. Um, the other thing that I thought was really funny, and I just, it's a surprise. I don't know if this is Hagrid's character or or J.K. Rowling doing a little bit of insertion, but like the, you know how the French are? <laughs> and, and it's just like, what is going on here? Um, and 
that, that, that was playing to the groundlings right there. You know a segment of the audience just started, being la- started laughing the moment mm-hmm. French was said. Yeah. Um, I will also say that that uh, maybe this is indicating that, that the uh, French didn't resist Hagrid so much, even though they're famous for their resistance. <sighs> You're welcome. This is what I'm here for. Do you have any more? Um, I think that's pretty much <laughs> it. I, I am kind of amused in, at that, like the random spells that we get and how funny they are. And, and the, the effort that is going into spell names is significantly decreasing <laughs> as we go on. It's, it's a conjunctivitis. It gave it conjunctivitis. That's what it is. We're just, we're just taught the obliteration charm obliterates things because, <laughs> because that's what it does. It's yeah. obvious. Um, it's no like, more Leviosa. So it, it's like it's like going to law school. The first couple of years, you were, you learn way too much Latin, <laughs> and then after what you start practicing, you're like, eh, 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 it's called this. You do this. Yeah. Um, th- this very much feels like a. I don't want to keep track of all of these spells that I make up and what they do, and it's getting to be more than like five, and I'm done. And it's like, okay, but. This is amusingly lazy. Like, you're getting paid a lot of money to do this. You can't keep a single Word document that just has the spells that you've done so far and reference it, like, the three times people actually do any any magic. Uh, it, it It's just... This is silly. Is anyone going to stop buying the books because <laughs> the spells are lazy? No. <laughs> They're invested now. Uh-uh. I will. I'm going to put my... <laughs> And the world will come crumbling down, BJ. <laughs> it will. Um, but but it, it, it's just so funny to me, like, how lazy this is. And it also feels, it's even funnier to me because I feel like I should go through and track it. And I'm sure the later books will do more. But the amount of magic that actually happens also seems to be significantly decreasing. Like, there's just stuff in the world, but, like, people aren't actually doing magic. It's just, like... We're on brooms. There's sort of magic-y stuff happening, but like... Eh. Literally, the only reason we're getting magic thus far in this book, like at Hogwarts, is because we see some Dumbledore's army yeah. meetings. Like, that's right. that's right. it. <laughs> in fairness, this is actually in text in the sense that Umbridge is seemingly making it her own personal mission to prevent them from actually learning that's magic. That's true. But we don't... We also, like... We're we're getting much much less of the other classes and what they might or might not be learning in the other classes in this book too. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah, getting yeah. kind of squeezed out. <laughs> yeah. And then they went to class on their way to Dumbledore. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm almost expecting there to be a chapter that that goes into a lot more detail about potions just to avoid any other like promise of magic. And it's just like, okay, so to make this potion. You need to start it 25 times this, like, just have, like, the entire recipe written Tight, out. Tight, because, like, Tight, we're Tight. not we're not dealing with magic. We're just talking about how to make a mediocre tea. Uh, because that's basically what all the potions are. You, um, wait until the next book, BJ. <laughs> <laughs> make, make a note, BJ. You put a pin in your wall now. <laughs> well, uh, if, if everyone's ready, then I can get into these notes. Uh, is said, I quite enjoyed this chapter. I mean, th- these are books of where pretty much most of the story is just told from the perspective of our characters, and a lot of the world that's off-camera just kind of feels like necessary elements to add to their tension and their plot. So to have a character basically just describe what all has been happening in the entire book in other parts of the world unseen, involving other relations and other causes and other missions, that's fun. That's a, that's a, that's a living, breathing world in a way we don't always get in this text, and I'd like to see more of that, because it adds to a feeling of realism that 
no, no, people are living in this place. There are missions going on. There is a world out there that is an active rotation while our characters stumble about the page. We do have some indication of it, and it's nice to see that we have come back to it because Dumbledore was worried about the giants because of mm -hmm. their original, uh, originally being allies with uh, Voldemort, yep. Voldemort in like the last go round, and it was because that this this is where we get like the leopards ate my face kind of thing. Like he was okay, but like it was all the other wizards that were bad, mm -hmm. and and he was the old, like the the set of good wizards, and it kind of is just like how dumb are the giants? But anyway, um, I, I mean, I, I, we talked about before, and I think it's proves that in this chapter too species relations was something i wasn't expecting to really be here for in harry potter but i'm in it the fact that the giants have legitimate reasons for being you know wanting mm -hmm. to maybe just overthrow the system or burn the world down or wanting just any alternative compared to what the ministry has been offering them i think it's pretty well sold and that we're getting to see a species that has been reduced to the brink of existence it's basically been combined to a reservation of where they are dying off in mass due to conditions they can't stand and someone's offering them a gun to fire back. Spencer, I am really glad that you were getting in front of this really early on, that you are that you are 100% supportive of how races are dealt with in the Harry Potter world. And, you know, I just want to note here in this pod that th this is where you stand. You will never be my marketing consultant, <laughs> ever, with that kind of summary. Never. Not happening. Uh, moving into the actual chapter, I... I absolutely adore that with all of the effort she has made with all of the hats that she has produced to date only two people have worn hermione's hats and one of them is her <laughs> i am positively tickled by that fact uh nick you absolute traitor him wandering the halls singing weasley is our king is hilarious and also a personal affront to everything that gryffindor should stand for that but, is pretty funny um i also will say that i do Either, like, I'm imagining elves very differently, or I'm very amused that Hermione is such a bad knitter that she, she, the, the hats that she made for elves fit her. <laughs> it, it either is, it, it's a horribly floppy hat, or it's more like, you know, a Jackie Kennedy hat, or which is kind of resting with like a little top <laughs> thing on her head in some way. Who knows? Uh, we have to give kudos, I think, to Malfoy that apparently he made a catchy enough song that the frickin' Gryffindor ghosts are singing it as they wander the halls. Credit where it's due, man. You, you, you produced a banger of a tune. Speaking of marketing consultant, I mean, Malfoy is, for all his faults, and... He knows his base. <laughs> yep. He can come up with some messaging. Uh, it's interesting how beat to an absolute pulp, pulp Hagrid is. I mean, in the text before, we had people being vaguely described as, and he looked beat up. This, they go into detail about, oh yeah, he's breathing in like his ribs are all cracked. It's like, this guy was positively slaughtered. And he is insistent that he wasn't attacked. And that just keeps coming up throughout this chapter of where our natural assumption is eventually the giants turned on him. And we do have an instant that he was being dangled in midair. But that was weeks ago. He's been journeying back. And he just keeps repeating over and over, no, I wasn't attacked. Snoo, snoo. <laughs> I marked that as a possibility, I've got to say. We'll see. Uh, it, really it's a reference conclusion. to Futurama where they end up in the, the planet Amazon. of Amazons and, yeah. Okay. Yeah, things happen. Do. Um, so, well, yeah. Well, BJ, let's place a pin back in that one. If, if Maxine is the explanation next chapter, we riot. His flesh was willing. <sighs> but bruised. Um, bruised and spongy? Was that yes. The full Futurama? Thank you, okay. Uh, 
I, BJ, as you kind of referenced, I love that the conversation back and forth uh, between Hagrid trying to play off his injuries and also trying to, you know, entertain his guests, the kids, <laughs> is among the single most British English conversations we've ever had in these entire books. Because it's like, Hagrid's been off screen long enough that uh, Rowling just wanted to just double down hard on Hagrid dialogue. <laughs> and so them going back and forth of where they're using every, you know, British slash British English insult, uh, insult or curse that they can, all at the same time he's trying to distract them by offering them a cuppa is just British hard. Yeah. And it's also interesting, like, I don't know what it was, and I think maybe it's just because he hasn't talked as much, but I feel like this passage was harder to read and mm-hmm. understand what's going on, and maybe some of that is, like, I don't know, his face is banged up, but, like, eh. yeah, I mean, or he's just not been around people I mean, talking and whatever it is, but I don't know. There's any number of possible explanations. My personal headcanon one is that when I'm getting particularly nervous or uncomfortable, I start sounding even more Southern than normal. Perhaps Hagrid just goes that much more really inner city London. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, dragons bleed green. I don't think we knew that. I'm very humored by that fact. We have many species of dragons and somebody that studies them. So we don't know that all dragons bleed green. But whatever sure. specific that... species this is. Whatever has been stakeified for the sake of Hagrid's eye, yes, that one bleeds green. And I, I love as a as a science fiction fan, the green blood trope is just one that has always amused <laughs> me because it is just rife in all forms of science fiction or fiction in general. I mean, we got Vulcans, we got Daleks, we got Ming the Merciless, we got uh, Jack Jeebs from Men in Black. Green blood is everywhere. It's incredibly rare on Earth. I, I googled it just for the hell of it, and the, uh, there's a species of New Guinea green-blooded skink, and the fact that it's named the green-blooded skink should tell you how rare that little treat, that little feature is, which basically doesn't clean its blood fast enough, so it accumulates just kind of waste materials that look green. And then there are some marine worms, like the peanut worm, that basically use an alternative to hemoglobin. Yeah, copper That's isn't it. as easy to, to get oxygen on and off of, I think. Yeah, which, oddly enough, copper blood is the explanation in text for Vulcans having green blood, despite, as you noted, it's not a great carrier of oxygen. Yeah, I mean, the goblins probably would have wrung it out of them, so. Mm, eh, eh, God. Okay, possible, yes. Um, uh, remind me, Sarah, I'm just going to ask this in relation to the How did Hermione know that it was giants that Hagrid had been off to see? Have they been speculating on that before, or did she just reach a moment of deduction right here in this conversation? I think that she hit on the deduction in this, I think she had it confirmed in this conversation. What it seems like to me is that she was, um, probably had some suspicions based on what we were talking about before that, you know, Dumbledore has brought up the giants, that they've had these conversations, that he's been gone this long, um, and that now he looks like this showing up again. Um, so yeah. I imagine she had and suspicions. And he's wrangled. Yeah, but this was sort of like, there's no other explanation for this. I mean, he's wrangled hippogriffs and tussled with dragons and all yeah. sorts of things and, like, has never been hurt. So it's like a... Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is Hagrid's Godzilla mm-hmm. moment? Other damn giants. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Hagrid's description, I'm debating whether... We know the giants are in the mountains, and we know that he passes through Poland and ends up in Minsk at one point. So we think in Urals or we think in the Caucasus in terms of what mountain range Hagrid is in for, uh, when he's talking to the giants in this chapter? I assume the Alps. I mean, if, if so, he went way east to then come back west. But he was trying to uh, shake I'm, a tail yeah. the whole time. So, it, you know. 
I, I was thinking, uh, reason, part of the reason I was thinking, besides the descriptions of, you know, Eastern Europe that he was going through, I was thinking out of the Urals of Caucasus because they'd be more remote. Yeah. Like, the Alps could work, but there'd be a hell of a lot more people dying from mountain accidents if they were in the Alps. Which, just a note, good God, was that just casually, callously brutal? Just said, oh yeah, muggles have run into him for years. We, we, we cover it up as that they've been dying by mountaineering. <laughs> oh. I mean... That that's what that's what all slides are. It's it it's not a naturally occurring avalanche. Just giants <laughs> yeah. getting up at Yeah, it it's just giants. British person just died in the Alps yesterday. Giants. Like, literally, I was reading. Oh my gosh. Um, let's see here. Yeah, again, the fact, the fact that Hagrid says it darkly, but everyone just kind of goes, "Oh, well, moving on." Man, is this a brutal world when it comes to muggle deaths off camera? Uh, I. I'm very much amused that Hagrid is having to play catch up on how just utterly insane this book's plot has been. <laughs> He's been off screen the entire time. He's not been participating. So have Harry rapid fire said, oh yeah, I was attacked by Dementors. I was expelled from school and I was brought in front of basically an inquisitorial, inquisitorial tribunal. So what have, what's been up for you? Oh, right. This has been kind of an insane book for everything that's happened. And also, I, I think it's interesting that we have an umbrage entrance to prevent Harry from talking to an adult about anything else. Because, I mean, yeah. maybe he just would have told things about, like, stuff that Dumbledore kind of knows, but doesn't really know. Because, honestly, like, they just sort of showed up at trial. Dumbledore basically had Harry not talk about anything, mm -hmm. and they went their separate ways. So, mm -hmm. hey, Dumbledore gave the main advice that every attorney should give your client when in a courtroom. Say nothing, goddammit. It, uh, we now it, it sounds Ron... like you have personal... Uh... Not a fucking bit. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, we now know that Ron's hell is apparently an actual muggle-based vacation, so mental note there. He is flabbergasted. You traveled like a muggle the entire time? Now, it could just be that you know the idea of traveling like a muggle is offensive to him, or he's just trying to process how two people that are both over ten feet tall, I think, would blend in in society, but... Column A, column B. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, he doesn't understand what muggle travel is like. Mm -hmm. And neither does anybody else, which is also kind of funny. It's just like, oh, muggle travel is just, muggle travel is Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it is taking forever to walk places. And they might be sort of pretty, but like, it takes forever. Not worth it. <laughs> you, as a man who just tried to go on a hike in New Zealand, sir, come on. It's a, it's a wonderful way to do a hike. Yeah, but I didn't tell you the story over a year and a half. I, I quickly summed up the, the highlights, and it was like, these are the cool parts. Here's a picture. I want a thousand-page text. It's the only way I understand and enjoy things. And uh, that's just for the first day. Yeah, uh, sure, go on. Uh, how, Sarah, how big is Hagrid again? Because 25-foot giants surprised me with how big that is. Yeah, I know he's a half. Yeah, tall, he's. But... I think he's like 10, 11 feet tall. I think he's also supposed to be twice as wide as he is tall. Did I, I feel like there was something like that thrown into the uh, chapter that, of just like, man. That, that, that is scientist you trying to apply the square cube rule. Just stop <laughs> it. Stop it. Um, but like, I mean, he'd, he'd have help, trouble breathing. I'm just saying. Yeah. But Gra Gravity has no effect. We're in a magical world. Stop it. Um, but real giants are like significantly bigger than he is. 25 feet was just utterly shocking. Further evidence that they were in somewhat more remote of a mountain range, because 25, a 25 foot object wandering around the Alps is going to be visible on camera. Yeah. Especially if they have a lot of black. Mm. Like hair and teeth. Mm. Uh, 80 of them possibly left in the whole world is 
brutal. Yeah. And definitely not 80. Uh-huh. Fewer than 80 now. Uh, I mean, we get reference to a wizard caused genocide, including the very interesting Dumbledore protesting the killing of the last giants in Britain. That was within within you know people's memory that these events have been going on, which makes it even even more even worse. This isn't some distant event of ancient time that we're now just seeing the ripples of. They debated legislation on this apparently, mm-hmm. uh, and then not even just be killed off, but placed in circumstances where they will inevitably die. They're basically confined to parameters by which the species will eradicate itself, just due to the nature of the species. Presumably, the Wizarding World knows this and cares not at all. This is a species of where Dumbledore's concerns are perfectly legitimate because anyone put in those circumstances would be grasping out for any kind of relief, any kind of alternative. So I think that's pretty well sold. So um, you're saying that Dumbledore has reservation reservations? Yes. <laughs> well said, BJ. I endorse this effort on your part because I've got to encourage you every now and then. Uh, and as noted, Dumbledore with the giant knowledge, the man is... I don't know if we know why he has such incredible knowledge of giants, but he seems like he is the, re- the local expert on the point. I mean, he knows about he knows about their absolute love of magic and how they'll need to be offering the magical items. He knows about the need to demonstrate promises, which is just practically speaking, given I'm sure all broken promises in the past. He very well structures these negotiations, and it seems like from what we're getting from Hagrid, and I don't know how Hagrid would convey the conversation inaccurately, it seemed like it was working quite well before outside factors intervened in the form of regicide and Death Eater intrusion. Spencer, did you just say that Hagrid was too dumb to lie? Yes. Okay. That is exactly <laughs> what I was trying to go for in a much more euphemistic kind of way. Thank you, BJ. Fair enough. I don't. He, he's basically offering us a camera image of the scene because he has no other way of artistic, artistically tailoring it. Gubrat. Sarah pronounced the word Gubrathian? Gubrathian fire? Oh, I don't know. Um, let me find it. I, I googled oh, it because I was wondering if like it was a. Um, hmm? I would say Gubrathian, but I don't. I don't. There's, there is an extra I in there. It's Gubrathian fire. I was curious whether this was myth- mythological in some way, so I googled it. Apparently, it's just a bastardized form of Scottish Gaelic, of where it means in that just forever. Hmm. So, forever fire, everlasting fire, sure. makes perfect sense. Uh, from a realism standpoint, the need for the uh, giant leader to have translation because he doesn't speak English. I thought was a nice touch that yeah, big, big, perfect sense that a lot of them living on the outskirts of society don't speak, you know, the common tongue. So I felt that was just a nice little thing to insert in there. That is often left out of fantasy and science fiction where for ease, everyone just speaks common perfectly well. Uh, in terms of names, Golgamath is a great fucking name. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, I just, Golgotha is one of my favorite words in the entire, in the entirety of the Bible, just cause it is a hell of a, if you're, if you're going to have somebody, if you want to name a crucifixion hill, Golgotha is a hell of a name to pick for it. I also, and you're mixing oh, that. I was just going to say, it also scans the same as Gilgamesh, which makes me happy. That that was the, like, I wonder if this is related to that. Yeah. And it was just like a, a lazy, it was like, eh, it's kind of like Gilgamesh, but. <laughs> just, can we, just because sometimes people make choices. About making things resemble something else does not make them automatically blazy, BJ. Sarah, this is what BJ runs on. Let him have this. I do it. I It's lazy when I do it, so I feel like it should be lazy when other people do it. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that it's lazy. I'm... I endorse this laziness sometimes, but sometimes but it's I feel actually like it should, harder should either... work, too. I'm just saying that like, either... not everybody has the same motivations or process that you do. Sure. 
I'm just saying that, like, you know, be consistent with your laziness. That's all I ask. Meanwhile, when you guys were, you know, turning to the Epic of Gilgamesh, my mind went, oh, she rammed Golgotha with the word math to make the most intimidating person possible. <laughs> that, that's, for, for me, it's a check in boxes of I'm running in the opposite direction right there. Well, and we know that I wizards mean, don't have to learn math at any point ever, so... So there, it's even marketing on his part. He's picking you know, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior with a topic that is so foreign to them that they are running away. Screaming. So what you're saying is that this giant is going to be instrumental in the death of Dumbledore. Sure, yeah, that this is foreshadowing now, BJ. You've you've hit the you know, the nail head right on the head with the hammer. Uh, <laughs> Hagrid and Maxine's determination is interesting to see too. Of where they've been confronted with a series of events of where there is just not much they can do to even walk away alive. To which the response is to shoulder in all the harder. Which, I admire their determination. I also am, as BJ referenced, a little bit tickled by Hagrid's utter affection for her Frenchie-based passion. I interpreted that more as just being, you know, fiery, but I'm not going to stifle your interpretation, BJ. Uh, I also think it's interesting and how much Hagrid understands that Dumbledore doesn't have a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And... You're one of his agents. Right. And it's just like... I don't have a lot of people. This is super important. It's still super important even after, like, negotiations fall mm -hmm. apart. We have to try. And it very much legitimately is. From what we've heard, the Giants were an essential arm of Voldemort's army last time around, and it doesn't seem like things have changed in terms of their potential for recruiting. So trying to stifle that one early, you are removing not even just an arrow from his quiver, but maybe even a full-on full bow. Uh, the Death Eaters showing up when they did. I said it's perfectly in keeping with Voldemort's strategy. We've been talking about this for two books now about how this is this element of recruiting was going to happen. The fact that McNair is there surprises no one, and I love Hagrid's description of "eh, the man loves murder." He had a lot in common with the Golgoth with Golgamath. BJ, <laughs> uh, you, you referenced who Dumbledore senses his ambassador versus who Voldemort senses his ambassador is interesting statement of what they're you know viewing as the necessary traits to appeal to giants. Maggot's perspective, he's their one giant, sure, yeah, send him with Maxine, they're, they're their half-giant, that qualifies, but also it's an important journey for him for realization and accomplishing new things, and he's uh, Dumbledore's most trusted guy. Voldemort, who do I like who likes killing the most? That dude, that dude's going. I mean, but they're also talking to different people, so, like, I think that it, it's sort of a, this all tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Hagrid was, you know, perfect for, what was Carcass. Carcass. Thank you. Perfect for that one. Meanwhile, McNair is perfect for Golgamath, which again suggests that the murder of the prior Gurge wasn't uh, just coincidental at that given mm. time. Uh, uh, in, ter in terms of strategy, compliments to both Hagrid and Maxine for working the distance. Always a great way of undermining a, cur a current influence and building a base of support. Doesn't work, but you know it's a successful tactic. Hagrid's mom was all kinds of yada yada but I feel like that's actually kind of appropriate. Uh, it would almost feel like that if Hagrid went into greater detail about it and showed more emotion about it, it would be both out of character and not appropriate for the scene in terms of how it plays out. I actually found him, Hermione, asking about it and Hagrid just kind of stifling it real quick and moving on was more appropriate to the scene. It also feels like there's more there, whether we find out about, like... Hard agree, hard I, agree. Yeah, I, it feels like... I could be reading more into it because of how many books I've read where stuff like this happens. So I'm curious to see if we get more of this. 
pretty but, much all pretty much all fantasy runs on parental issues in terms of the motivations for the characters. So, yeah, I'm perfectly expecting there is more to be found here to be you know uncovered at a later point. Perhaps if the giants do pick a side later on, Hagrid's mom could play, and her ghost upon him could play a bit of an could play a, have a bit of an ongoing influence. Yep. Uh, or the other what, family that Hagrid might have because sure. That, that that's where I feel something happened. Like Hagrid has found out he has more giant family and there's something there. Uh, in terms of the little things that I just absolutely adore, the very brief hide the mugs was just great in, in, in terms of, oh, our characters are learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, who said hide the mugs and are our characters learning, or is it just Hermione is that the, is the only one that is at all practical ever? They are a Freudian trio. If one of them learns, they all learn, <laughs> particularly given how dependent they are of each other. Uh, back in book one, we heard, we heard it said that Fang was not a fighter, he was a lover. I think we've never had a better demonstration to that than Fang goes up and tries to lick Umbridge on the face. He tries so hard. <laughs> that is one hell of a lover of a dog, the aura of that woman <laughs> just having him in the other side of the room cowering. I mean, honestly, like, I think that is the perfect way to fight Umbridge. <laughs> Sloppy dog kisses is, 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 is the, like, if you were to choose something that would be the exact opposite of everything that Umbridge represents, <laughs> that'd be you really know, high up there. You know, if, um, if Umbridge had, like, taken a seat and just, like, you know, on, on Hagrid's courtesy and he was making her a cup of tea, Fang would have gone over and just full-on crawled mm-hmm. in her lap, and that would have completely changed the nature of the conversation. But also, if Fang started barking at her and nipping, like, this would have been, like, I understand how to deal with mm-hmm. this. Sure. And that, On that point, we get to see Umbridge in her element in a way I don't know if we've really had yet. She's actually a skilled detective-slash-interrogator, and she very quickly hones in on all of the incongruencies in the Hagrid story. Now, Hagrid's trying his best. He's not great when it comes to, you know, responding to these questions, but it would be hard anyway when she's got a hell of a lot of evidence that she's very quickly put together to completely undermine their story. Uh, I, as referenced earlier, I'd also remind Hagrid that I don't know or I don't... I don't is a perfectly valid answer in the context of a police interrogation, and you probably should say it more. She's... At, anything you provide is giving her information. Saying you... Oh, man, that's weird. There's nothing that she can say to that. Uh, and also, final thing for me, oh dear God, what is Hagrid planning? I'm anticipating Blast-Ended Scroot's version 2, and that's going to be horrifying. Probably it's going to be worse, too, because he's been spending a year building up to this and is really excited about it. <laughs> Hagrid's only excited by, you know, living nukes of creatures, so this is what I'm anticipating is going to happen. And that's it for me. Uh, but Sarah, in what is an extended recap of a recap to several different people including the audience who wins and who loses in this chapter yeah so i think we need to talk a little bit about what counts as appearing in the chapter is maxine a winner given that things happen i will say if their name actually appears in the chapter they they have they participated in the the chapter well mm, i i feel like that's that's did dumbledore appear in the chapter it's his plan that's in motion here yeah. Is this a win for Voldemort because he has converted basically the rest of the living giants to his army? I think it unquestionably is. Yeah. But I think that I think that we actually have to even if it's in the retelling like this, it has to be someone that we saw in the action. Have action. Yeah. Okay. Um 
even even through Hagrid's yes. description. So if they did things rather than just being described by him as being off-camera. right. So you know, I think that we could extrapolate out to like McNair and his other. Uh, there were other Death Eaters with him, right? It was a pair, maybe, mm-hmm. of Death there Eaters. Um, I mean, I think we could extrapolate a win out to them. Um, it's on behalf of Dumbledore or on behalf of Voldemort, but. <laughs> That would be a... That'd be a really <laughs> fun uh, twist. <laughs> Strange double mm. crossings going on. Dumbledore is Voldemort, or Voldemort is, has been masquerading as Dumbledore <laughs> this whole time. They're one and the oh same. Um, I, well, anyway. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I think that we could give, like, a, a win to them if we wanted to. You know, it's hard to, in our little frame narrative in this chapter, it's hard to give anyone a win or a loss because so... Our trio actually did so little in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that Umbridge has, like, actually does a good job of interrogating in this chapter, but it doesn't really come to anything specific. So, to my mind, I think we have yeah. to go to Hagrid's, um, like, Hagrid's actual tale for it. So, I don't know, maybe Death Eater, Death Eater win on this one? McNair win? Carcass loss? Carcass loss, Golgamath win? It- you know, from a certain perspective, McNair has not had a win the entire damn series. So let's give it to him. He didn't get to he didn't get to decapitate one hippogriff the entire series not so far. One. Let him have his victories. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm good with that because I do like I do think that this is a significant strategic win for Very much um, so. Voldemort's side, and and McNair did engineer that. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting too, from a win-loss perspective. I think it's a bigger win for Voldemort than it is a loss for Dumbledore, because I think he was much more reasonable about this being kind of a hail mary anyway. Yes. Um, so, yeah. in in the fact that that this is the Order of the Phoenix, are we expecting a problematic loss? Like, it feels like naming yourself the Order of the Phoenix might might not be the best uh, choice. I feel like I can't remember if we've addressed this so far, but I feel like this is a we're going to fail spectacularly and we're going to pray to God <laughs> the magic is enough to bring us back and be OK. Yeah, I, but this really feels like the beginning of the burn. Well, I mean, you know, it's I guess it has already happened in some sense, right? Because the Order of the Phoenix is a holdover from the first Wizarding War. Um, like the original group was called the Order of the Phoenix with Harry's parents. And, the, and so like... We're, they're pretty much all dead except for Sirius Black. We're already in like another iteration of this. It was a serious situation. This. Yeah, so, well, that one was beneath you, BJ. <laughs> that one was lazy. <laughs> See? I'm consistently lazy, right? I We, we started out with this. Um, so... <laughs> As far as losses go, I do think you're right. Like, I don't, um, Spencer, I don't feel like this is a loss for, I don't think that losing the Giants is a loss for Voldemort or for, God, now I'm going both ways, for Dumbledore or um, for Hagrid or for Maxime necessarily. But it does feel like a lot of, a lot of things went wrong for Hagrid personally. I I would agree that he certainly seems like he had a very unpleasant time from this journey. It's balanced out by the fact, though, he still went on the journey. And he though. came back from that it. He still he went, he came back, he succeeded in everything he was actually expected to do and seemed like he was doing a good job before things outside of his control intervened. He found out about his mom. Yeah. It's like it's one of those things where the end result was unpleasant, 
God, I'm, I'm actually going to agree it's not about the destination, it's about the journey <laughs> when it comes to Hagrid right here. But I think from a journey perspective, this displays a lot of character growth and a lot of accomplishment from Hagrid that I almost don't want to mark as a loss, even if it didn't work out. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, so, I mean, I think then the losers that we, the real loser that we see is Carcass, right? Carcass became <laughs> a carcass. I mean, yeah, like, literally, but... Okay, so Sarah, we will let you pick the corpse as the loser you know. of the chapter. I mean, I think you could also make an argument, and, you know, we have singular winners and losers, but, like, there was a real loss for, for the Giants. Yes. Like, this yeah. this does feel uh, like yeah. a a blow to an entire species that they might recover from, but, like, it feels like they're closer to, like, maybe 20 to 30 Giants that, like, get along with each other-ish yep. anymore. Yep. It, it, it does feel like that working with Dumbledore was the only actual long-term hope for the species surviving and persisting, mm -hmm. and that instead they've adopted a middle-finger mentality to the world and wizarding community in a way that both of them can't survive this. And most likely from Voldemort's perspective, he's just going to use them as shock troops and kill them off camera anyway, even if he wins. Yeah. So I, I like that as an answer. I'm, I'm good with the, the giants writ large. All right. Questions, Questions then? Uh... With respect... Go ahead, Spencer. Uh, the killing of the last giants in Britain. Mm -hmm. How old is Dumbledore again? Didn't we do the mm -hmm. math this... at one point and he's like a million years old? <laughs> I, I thought he was like 90s. I thought so too. Um, yeah. He's really damn old, but this is still something that is happening in... Uh, this is only a couple generations, I imagine, removed from the present when it comes to the killing of the last giants. Mm -hmm. Is... What has been happening to the Giants are relatively recent current events, or was the killing of the last Giants in Britain in some ways just the last act of a genocidal history? I would imagine that it's in some ways the last act of a genocidal history simply because of how we get the Giants talked about um, by everyone mm -hmm. who's not, like, immediately... By everyone except for Dumbledore and Hagrid, essentially. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to look up quickly to see if I can see anything about about that but it feels like one of the things it feels like one of the things oh the harry potter wiki places them specifically in the ural mountains okay well that, so there's that one does question on the, answered <laughs> it does fit on the eastward track they were saying through poland and minx that that would be much more of a straight east yeah track. um so all i'm seeing it it does not have specific dates but it does say um the magical community the majority of whom detest and fear giants for their atrocities committed in the past then decided to leave that colony once they were put there isolated and unsupervised. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have specific dates. I think it's part of a longer, longer history. It would make more sense if it was, because it would fit in with the Goblin Rebellions mm -hmm. and all of the other acts of the interseam warfare we've heard about in the past. This seems like it's almost the last gasp of that rather than something that was, you know, new at yeah. the time. I feel like we've talked about magical items before. Um, but this chapter gives a hint that the goblins might be the dwarves of basically a, of, of every other fantasy series. And I'm sort of wondering if, if this is a canon thing that we should be vaguely paying attention to, or is, is this sort of a throw off, but like the magical helm that the goblins mm -hmm. made mm -hmm. feels like a, there's a problem, uh, that, that this, that needs addressing, uh, in, in this they make magical armor and weapons. Um, and is this the origin of most magical armor and weapons? Is there a, a, a stockpile, a storeroom? Um, was uh, 
Godfrey's sword a goblin artifact? Like, where? what is the realm of uh, magical war items? And is this, like, um, to reference another series that is vaguely relevant to, to the Mangum Talks podcasts, uh, kind of like in Wheel of Time, that there are very narrow rules for magical weapons and armor. So I, yeah, it's, I, I don't know specifically about weapons and armor, but we have had a couple of other like goblin made artifacts kind of show up or get referenced in some of the other books. And, and we see some moving forward too. Um, but it, their metal work, yes, I think does get used in a lot of kind of weapons of war and, and armor and things like that. But it also just gets made for used in regular stuff too. Like, mm-hmm. um, like some of the uh the firebolt broomsticks the metal bits that are on that are goblin made ironwork so it's a it's more capacious than the idea of goblin made stuff and artifacts yeah. is more capacious than yeah this feels like they they are filling in for not having dwarves yes i think i think and so. yeah it, i it's one of the things where i, I like Oh, that fantasy trope has a medieval tie-in trope that I've always liked, that the metal workers, the goldsmiths, were the origins of banks, because yeah. they were the ones that were working with, metal, with working with metal anyway to, you know, establish bases of coinage, of where, you know, the original banks were called goldsmiths, because they were just storing gold in their basements, while they were also doing blacksmith and other metal work. And that's kind of reasons that dwarves are associated with both, you know, hoarding money and everything else, but also in terms of metal work. And that blends into goblins naturally here, given that they're literally running the banks at the same mm-hmm. time, too. I will also say, here's a line from this. Production of goblin-made ironwork was limited, however, as the goblins involved in making it were prone to strikes and walkouts. <laughs> uh, and tying into the giants, remind me, weren't the goblins, or at least weren't there factions of goblins that backed Voldemort in the last war? I think that, I don't know if they specifically backed him. They might have. Um, but I think that they were... At the very least, there were factions that were sympathetic to his cause because, again, wizards have historically been not great, not great to them. Yeah. I have a related question. Do we know who owns the uh, media companies in the pottering world? Hmm. Um, We're going to meet somebody who owns a rival media company. (laughs) Luna Lovegood's dad. yeah. Yeah, but like... Other than that, so it's really. Do the Groblins run the media? <laughs> Pushing the comparisons, are we, BJ? Uh, I don't have to push real hard. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm gonna look up and see if we know who runs the Daily Prophet, which is literally the only. Uh, no, it's well, I don't know. The editor is not a goblin. I was assumed it. I was assumed it was at least. I always thought so the Daily Prophet is at least having BBC parallels. That there was at least a government ownership element. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was more posty. I, th- I think it is being a co- compilation of all British media rolled into one. It's, yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, at least, it's certainly at this point, it's it's so closely intermixed with the, like, ministry agenda, um, but it's unclear exactly, like, why that's happening. Um, the latest known editor-in-chief was Barnabas Cuff, who is a wizard. Mm. Oh, that's how we know that. Okay, that's going to come up later. But I, <laughs> there's no um, there's no indication that the goblins are um, associated with. I feel like it needed to be asked. Uh, fair, but to go back to a, a 
previous point, um, the Gryffindor, so it's sort of Gryffindor, is Goblin Maid. There you go, BJ. Which I, also comes I am up going later, to be to be fair. That'll be mm-hmm. interesting. Um, I have many questions that I can't ask. Okay. Uh, last, one, last one from me. How commonly known was it where the giants were? I think I think that I don't think it's like kept secret in it, really, um, because there wa- it, like it, there was a wizarding push to get them into this sort of colony, right? Um, but I don't know how much people really think about it. It, it was one of the things. Where my assumption, based on your description and what we've seen in the text, was that. The powers that be are aware, because it was almost like an active formal or informal policy to kind of push them there. But the average person on the street may not know other than they're they're elsewhere now. Yeah, that might be elsewhere now might be the right answer. Um, but I'm not I'm not really sure. Hey Spencer. Other than the location of a casino, do you know where any reservation is? Like, <laughs> like could you just go to one? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, actually. But the casinos are a very helpful marker. <laughs> Right, but like you know, without that, yeah, yeah, because I've driven through more than a few times as I'm going east west across the state. Okay, but like I, I, I feel like this is kind of like people know that they exist, but if you, you know, weren't able to plug one into Google Maps, I feel like it, you know, with a paper map, it would be super hard to. to I could not, one. I could not yeah, find for, like tell you specifically where one is. Yeah, Florida is a bad example because they're mm-hmm. large and apparent and we know where they are, but whatever else. If you didn't like, you know, where the Cherokee Reservation is in North Carolina, that yeah. might be harder. If you just drop me on, drop me in the middle of Arizona or New Mexico, God help me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and the Midwest is just like, they exist, but like, yeah. who knows? So, yeah, I feel like that's sort of where it is in, in terms of my mind and, and what happened to the Giants. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, so uh, that, that, that's it for me. Uh, my favorite part now, what is our picture for the next chapter? <laughs> Next, we have chapter 21, The Eye of the Snake. I mean, and that has no other possible Not meaning. Not a single, so. single Shut one. up. Um, the eyes in, in the forest are oh, interesting. That is an intimidating image. Yeah, so we've got some very twisty-looking trees um, in the foreground going into a sort of uh, dark, dark and drafty tunnel with what I assume are eyes glowing out of the yeah. depths. And, yeah, you so- know, you just have to hope that the... Pussy Willow is not wampy on the eye of the snake. <sighs> okay, so I was looking at an image that was out of my nightmares of something demonic staring out of the bocage, and BJ has made it something even more nightmarish and somehow. So, on that note, guys, had a lot of fun with this chapter. It was quite a bit of fun to read and even more fun to discuss. And in spite of BJ's best efforts, I'm looking forward to discussing the next As one. As usual, it was fun until it wasn't. <laughs> Till then, yeah.